Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome everyone to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm excited to have today's guest is Tokopa Turner. She's a Canadian author and dream worker who blends the mystical teachings of Sufism and a Jungian approach to dreams. Her first book, Belonging, was awarded the 2018 Gold Nautilus Award for its contribution to the field of personal growth, the gold reader's favorite, and was shortlisted for the Whistler Independent Book Award. Sometimes called a midwife of the psyche, Tokopa's work focuses on restoring the feminine, reciprocity with nature, reconciling paradox, honoring grief, ritual, and making beauty. She lives on a small island in the Salish Sea and is about to move. So welcome, Tokopa. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have this opportunity with you. We, I was mentioning to you that for many, many years, I've been following climate change conferences and attending them. And right now in uh, Glasgow, we're uh, in the middle of COP26. And um, it's the whitest climate change conference ever because of the COVID restrictions for travel. So the African nations, much of Latin America, aren't there. And since it's going to be ending right when this airs, I'm just wanting to kind of speak to a deeper aspect of the climate change and the sense of our being part of nature, not separate, not something to fix, and how that intersects with your work of reviving the sacred, of dreams, of belonging, of deepening the relationships that we have with the natural world. What are your thoughts about that and how that intersects with your own work? Yeah, well, that's a really big topic. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I first was compelled to start asking myself questions about belonging, what was really important for me was to start making a kind of audit or inquiry around how we think of that word and what it what are our general associations to belonging before we could even broach the topic of how we have become severed both personally and as a culture and even globally from a sense of belonging because we really are in a kind of epidemic of alienation, aren't we? So, you know, I think most of us think of belonging in a sort of knee-jerk way, where we think of belonging of something as something that is outside of ourselves, that if we keep, you know, looking for it, that maybe one day we'll sort of amazingly come upon it and it's, you know, wholly intact and we recognize it as a place of belonging and it recognizes us and we live happily ever after. But when I started to examine 
the dimensionality of belonging, the first thing that occurred to me was that belonging actually has so many different incarnations because there is, yes, there is that sense of belonging perhaps to a geography, you know, a place that feels like home, or there's the sense of belonging to a community or a group of people which we feel are like-hearted or like-minded. But then there are these subtler forms of belonging that we never really talk about, which are, you know, belonging to the culture itself. Then there is the idea of belonging to our own bodies. And what about belonging to a, you know, a spiritual path or um, a way of going in the world. And then, of course, this is the level that you're talking about, the grand level, which is belonging to Earth itself, belonging to the rest of nature. So I feel like it's really important to make some distinctions about belonging and say, okay, there are many different forms of belonging, many different types of belonging. And of course, they are all interconnected. But when we are struck with a feeling of unbelonging, a feeling of being exiled, of being outcast, of being an outsider, it's really important to name the way in which we feel unbelonging. And so maybe we can kind of start there and um, slowly kind of uh, approach this larger conversation around belonging to the earth and, and how is it that we became so disconnected uh, in the first place? Yeah, I love that. You, you use a term too, the great belonging, I think, in your book you were talking about. But this, this you're right, this sense of separation, of alienation, of the way that we distinguish ourselves is as a subject in a world of objects. And from my perspective, at the heart of all suffering begins with this lie, this myth of separation where we're, we're separated by fear and divisiveness and it shapes the way we relate to the world. How do you see of that exiling us and how do you see the possibility of returning from the ex exile? What is the, the path from the exile of non-belonging? Well, yes, I think that's such a great question. And, and I think the first thing that we have to do is sort of examine the origins of our estrangement in the first place, because how do we know how to get back if we don't even know how we became separated in the first place? And so for me, these occur on, you know, roughly three different levels. There is the personal level. And this is the level we can all relate to that maybe we grew up in a family home where there were certain qualities and attributes which were encouraged and aggrandized as important in that home. And then there were this whole other set of qualities which were either derided or dismissed or discouraged or completely unacknowledged. Um, and those qualities were just not addressed, right? So here we have these two sets of qualities that are either encouraged or dismissed in us. And um, as a small person, what ends up happening is in order to maintain a place of belonging in your own family home, you will roughly attempt to construct 
some kind of personality, which is in alignment with those valued aspects and away from the dismissed aspects. Or you just don't end up developing them because they're not encouraged in you. And so there's a split that happens at this very basic level. And maybe it doesn't happen so strongly in your family home. Maybe it happens more when you're socialized in school or um, you know, in contact with the people that you see on a daily basis, whatever that looks like for you. So you have this kind of splitting off that happens internally as a result of that being mirrored on the outside. And eventually what happens is we become estranged from those qualities in ourselves. So they become strangers to us. Um, and in the book, I call these the refugee aspects of the self because we, uh, those qualities are pushed away and then we continue to push them away so that they're living in the margins of our own acceptance. You know, this happens across the course of a person's lifetime. So that's just the, the first level, which is at the, you know, the very basic personal level. And then the level above that is the cultural level. And this is a very big topic because, but quite similarly to what I just described in one's family home, there are a set of qualities that are culture values and espouses and aggrandizes uh, like strength and beauty and youth and power and wealth and status and extroversion and triumph. And then there are all these other qualities in, that our culture just dismisses like feelings <laughs> or dreams or really the spiritual life, one's personal relationship with the, the animistic world, nature itself, because we treat nature as a commodity, as a resource, as opposed to us being in kinship with the many different beings that live in nature. And so that's going on at the cultural level. So of course, this trickles down to the family homes where families will generally kind of pick up and espouse the same sorts of dogmas that we receive at the level of culture, because of course, we're raised and embedded in that culture, whatever the culture may be for you. So just a side note here, when I'm talking about culture, I'm sort of talking about the over culture. I am completely aware that we have many different cultures within uh, our culture, but of course we also are most of us subject to this over culture. So then we have this level above that still, which is the ancestral level, the intergenerational patterns. And so at the ancestral level, many of us who have done any work sort of tracing back our own ancestry don't have to go very far into that exploration to find a time when our people's people were estranged from their land of origin, from their place, from the faces that looked like our faces, from the land which gave rise to our bodies, from the traditions, from the ways, from the songs, from the meals, from the embroidery, you know, everything that came out of our ancestry. And so when that is broken at the ancestral level, of course, those sporting moments, we can call them maybe striations in our ancestral line, get carried down through the generations. So people, for instance, who are the descendants of people who were enslaved in the African diaspora, for instance, or the Jewish diasporas, 
would have that very directly in their family line where they have been displaced in a violent and traumatic way. And so that uh, unbelonging, that exile, of course, is carried through intergenerationally. So you see, there are these um, many levels at which we are experiencing unbelonging, which I believe is why we have an epidemic at this point, because there has been so much trauma on all of those levels that there is a huge amount of healing to undertake in order to come back into a place of belonging, into a practice of belonging, because I I do think of belonging as a dynamic enterprise, and I believe we can build competencies towards belonging rather than it being something that is bestowed or not upon us from the outside, that it's actually something we can build capacity with, a capacity for belonging. It seems like when you talk about the personal, the cultural, the ancestral, all of that relates to un digested or completed or experienced trauma in every case, which I look at as frozen past, for instance, that we're not able to be present because either in our ancestors or people in our family or ourselves had such overwhelming experiences in the culture always seems to point to that an intelligence not something broken, but an intelligence in our nervous system to protect us at a particular evolutionary point in either our personal development, ancestral or cultural development was suppressed in order to protect us from being completely overwhelmed by it. I don't know if you agree with that perspective, but you you mentioned capacity. And it seems to me that part of the issue that we're looking at here has to do with our interior capacity, the ability to have a felt sense, to feel the ability to feel our emotions. So many people are disembodied and not able to even feel their emotions. They're so suppressed. And then are looking through really a broken glass that they can, they don't see the cracks. It looks like it's normal, but in fact, part of their essence has a large part of our cultural and personal essence has been suppressed in order to protect us. How do we create the capacity to integrate those frozen aspects, those trauma parts of ourselves that come from all three of the areas you're talking about? Yeah, of course, certainly. I agree very much with what you're saying, you know, because Um, If we take the example of intergenerational trauma, like my grandparents were survivors of the Holocaust in Warsaw in Poland. And, you know, my grandfather was kept in a concentration camp for three years in the Warsaw ghetto. And they put him on the train to Auschwitz after three years. And so he was going to the gas chambers and he jumped off the train. And I, I don't know how he managed to do that. But because of that decision, he survived and I exist. And and so the horrors that he witnessed and that my grandmother witnessed and that everybody that it was in that generation witnessed were just too great for one person, for one generation to absorb, to integrate. 
And so it almost metastasizes, right? It follows to the younger branches of the family tree to continue to working on those pieces. And we see the evidence of that with epigenetics in science. Now, a lot of the stress patterns that were sustained by people who direct directly experienced that uh, horror and violence, those same cortisol reactions are seen in grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. So there's something that carries through physiologically. We're learning more and more about how trauma operates intergenerationally. So certainly that is something that we have to contend with. And I think more and more, it's rare to actually find somebody who hasn't got trauma to work out nowadays, you know, mainly because we live in a kind of inherently traumatic culture. But so your question really is like, how do we have the capacity to do that? My feeling about it is that one of the great competencies of belonging is getting right with the possibility and even probability that one can't do it all in one lifetime and that one just has to live with the unfinishedness and the inherited pieces that go to the younger generation coming up around us to keep working on this and we just have to do the best with what we can in this lifetime to to be resilient and to grow. But I think one of the important things that you brought attention to is about the feeling life and the disembodiment that is so espoused by the culture that we live in, in terms of our reliance on technology and our disconnection from nature and the focus on the rational life, the rational mind, and the absolute denigration of anything that falls into the category that is deemed irrational, um, which includes the feeling, the intuition, the instinct, the, the deep knowing, the dreaming life. And so one of the great ways to develop the resilience that I think you're referring to, for me, has been to devote my life really to dream work. And so I've been working with my dreams my whole life. I was very drawn to them when I was just a small person. And I lived in a, a family that actually encouraged the sharing and remembering of dreams. So I was uh, different than most people in that way. We're not also lucky to have some veneration of the dreaming life within arm's reach. So I kind of have to go devoted my life to spreading the good word about the importance of paying attention to your dreams because the way that I I hope you don't mind me just sort of um, jumping into this topic. Oh, no, it's great. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. Go. I'm on a roll. <laughs> but um, the way that I understand dreams is that they are nature, naturing through us in the very same way that a tree bears fruit, bush gives flowers and scents and seeds that dreams are born through us and that there is that they come from a larger intelligence similar to metaphor would be like mycelium a kind of interconnected 
psyche, which is the intelligence of the earth itself, and that it expresses itself through us in this very biological, very physiological way, which is the form of these stories and these images. And when we learn to understand their language, it can be deeply fruitful in terms of, yes, helping us to heal trauma, yes, helping us to really develop a subtle capacity for feeling, to understand not just how we feel in a moment, but the texture, the tone of that feeling. It helps us to develop our clairvoyant faculties, which is to say the ability to have memories of the future, to perceive things that aren't available to the rational mind and to our immediate senses, and to tap into the inclination of nature itself as it expresses itself in our personal lives, and then how that inclination to growth and to wholeness is actually in harmony with the greater biosphere. That's how I view dreams. And um, we can talk more about that if you want, but I just kind of wanted to throw that out there as if, you know, as a place for developing capacity and resilience, I know no better place than that. And I can safely say that I have been raised by my dreams. My dreams have parented me, so I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you're saying and totally resonate with it. And the word that rings for me as you're talking about this, what's the elemental issue here that we're talking about? And the word that keeps coming to me is relationship, that this is yeah. an issue of how are we related and the difference between how nature relates to itself through relationship and inter interconnectedness. However, humans relate to each other through mind, which doesn't allow us to have the kind of deep relatedness that we've talked before about othering, the role of othering, how we find part of our identity and sense of belonging by saying, I'm not them, I'm not those people, I'm not that kind of a person. And there's a, a kind of closure in naming something. There's a, there's a cutting off, like the potential of what's possible in the interrelationship of the parts of a whole system as opposed to comes back again to separation but it is separation in our ability to recognize the subtle relationships with both the visible and the invisible worlds you know there's just one one piece that i kind of want to bring out of that that i i just want to bring some attention to the beautiful paradox of separation and unity because there is no such thing as the perfect unity not even in nature you know nature can be brutal and it certainly has you know this capacity to include and exclude and to be discerning and I think, I think of belonging not as a path of trying to achieve some sort of euphoric unity, because I think it is the way of all of nature to have this dynamism between separation and togetherness, between apartness and belonging. You know, I think of this 
The image that I love is if you've ever watched a flower on in time-lapse photography or film, you'll see that as it blossoms, it contracts slightly before it blossoms open further. And then it contracts again, and then it blossoms further. And the reason why I love this image for what we're talking about is because I think these contractions or times of exile or separation are incredibly important because that process of discerning what we value, what we love, what uh, we are, and what we are not, and what we are stepping away from, and what we don't agree with, is incredibly valuable and necessary to true belonging. And those things aren't static either. There isn't some place of static attainment. You know, you may have a sense of belonging, but, but then that belonging can shift and change. And then suddenly a new belonging must be sought. And, and in that process, there's often an extra extrication, where a sloughing off of old forms of belonging. So I, I really like to try and hold the paradox there on separation versus togetherness, and um, try to understand that this happens in, in cycles. I can't see how you could know connection without knowing separation. <laughs> They're the front and the back of the hand in a way. And it's interesting that you brought up the word contraction, because I know in somatic trauma work, it is about contraction and releasing, contraction and releasing in a titrated way, you know, when we can touch the trauma and feel the tightness and then just be able to release into it a little bit at a time allows us to digest and integrate more fully those things that we would call trauma. And I don't look at trauma as the thing. I look at trauma as what happens to you or the story that you make up when the trauma happened, some of it ancestral, of course, in other ways, but in a personal trauma, that we would be able to touch it, contract and release. That allows us to have a greater sense of, well, it is a part of belonging because it, as it's integrated, it's no longer frozen, a frozen part of ourselves. And the emotions and the physical sensations then come out and that I believe creates greater capacity to be with more and more parts of our suppressed essence. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Well, it does because, you know, I love to turn to nature for guidance on this. Um, and in, I mean, right now here on the West Coast in the Northern Hemisphere, we are in the midst of fall on the edge of winter. And, you know, it, this is the season of we're entering the, the death season. But death in nature is the most active and fertile state in nature's life cycle. So trees, for instance, in autumn, they go, uh, they undergo a dramatic shedding, dropping their leaves and dropping their pine needles. It, this is called the abscission process. And abscission is such a wonderful word because it comes from the Latin root scissors or cinder, <clears throat> which means to cut. This abscission is a way of actually conserving energy and resources for the tree so that it can make its way through the harsh winter ahead. But also in that shedding are the reproductive fruits and seeds and cones that are the hope 
for the new life that's being sent out into the world. And so I think the same thing is true for people that we have to go through these shedding processes. In the book, I call them initiations by exile, because there are these terrible times where we are suddenly cut from a place of belonging, whether it's the breakup of a relationship, or whether that looks like leaving a profession, or a spiritual group, or a terrible loss, a death of some kind. Sometimes it manifests as illness and disease. And suddenly, the way that we understood our lives, our, our sense of belonging, is gone. It dissolves and it falls away. And I believe that we have too few elders guiding us in these processes in our culture, because really, these are times of initiation. And what I mean by that is, if we can maintain the perspective that something is happening here in the same way that the leaves are falling off the trees, but that actually seeds are being sown, and we may not see those, the growth of those seeds, sometimes for years and years. The same is true of an acorn. You know, how many acorns just, you know, don't get seeded or seed by some miracle given the right conditions by five, ten years down the line, right? Um, but there is a seeding potential that happens in these times. And the important thing, I think, to focus on for us as we are yearning and longing for a place, a way to return to a sense of belonging in our lives as we endure these difficult times of exile. And I say that knowing that we are in the midst of, you know, coming up on two years of a global pandemic as we record this conversation and uh, how long it's been since things uh, have been what we knew as normal. But there's an opportunity in these times of loss and of shedding to really begin the discernment process, to understand what went wrong or what has been going wrong or what needs to change in order for us to live a more harmonious, related, fruitful way of life. And I think each of us has to ask that personally. And then I think we also have to bring what we discover to a cultural discussion in, in the case of our pandemic. Um, and then begin to nurture those seeds. But a big part of the obsession process of exile is grieving. And that is just like winter here on the West Coast. You know, it's the, it's the wet season, the season of fertility and getting more comfortable with the flow of grief and the value of grief and allowing it to have its place and have its way in us so that those seeds have a chance to finally come and be broken open. I love that you bring up initiation because of course modern culture has pretty much ended the practices of youth going through an initiation which for tribal lives that an indigenous people always a part of the changing of the seasons of the human species. But we are going through an amazing initiation, as you said, with COVID and many other things are happening. And I also really appreciate that you bring up grief. I was talking to someone at the climate change and they were talking about a woman who was one of the delegates there who started crying 
and she said, oh God, don't let, my, don't let anybody see me crying. And it's like, wait a minute, there's a lot to grieve. Grief is enormous. How do you grieve 200 species a day becoming extinct on the planet? We need to learn to grieve. And that is, I think, very much related to both the aspect of initiation, but also of the integration of, of trauma, that grief is one of the aspects of being able to integrate and increase our interior capacity to hold what what is unfolding in the world. Yes, absolutely. And and I also think grief is healing in motion. You know, when we are stuck, you know, in depression or despair, which are also, you know, completely necessary states sometimes, but they are stagnant, like we don't have movement. So when we begin to grieve, we have movement. Uh, something is moving through us. And in that process, we begin to contact the creativity that is necessary to address the problems before us. So the two are really hand in hand, you know, the ability to take action and to do something uh, valuable to help the problems of our times. We have to be able to be sensitive to them in the first place. And so having that sensitivity, that capacity is a sign of healing because really what we're looking at in the world right now is the absence of that sensitivity. I remember James Hillman, who was uh, sort of the bad boy of the Jungian world for those who might know uh, him. He was the archetype. He was an archetypal psychologist. He had this thing. He would talk about how evil he would describe evil as the anesthetized heart. The anesthetized evil is actually the anesthetized heart, the heart that can't feel and that can turn its face away stone cold in the face of you know, great horrors and grief. So actually, grief is a sign of healing. It is a turning towards that which is suffering in us and suffering around us. And so it's a beginning. So much so. I'm glad you, you brought up the word movement too. That kind of sensitivity to recognize the movement in us because life is movement. When we're numb with with grief, when we're numb with trauma, when we have those frozen parts of us, those parts are, for all purposes, they're dead. They're not alive. So movement is life. And the more sensitive we can be to that, and grief is such a, a powerful path. In, in my courses, I actually teach a grief process that I ask people to do for 21 days that every day to go and, and grieve, similar to like a Tonglen meditation where you take in the pain and you allow yourself to process that pain and then send out the, the clear, clean energy. I'm, I'm a five rhythms teacher for over 20 years, 40 years of dancing with Gabrielle Roth. So movement to me always lights me up because it, when something is stuck in me, I know I need to dance. I need to move my body. I need to to feel what is being suppressed and allow it to move through me. You're a dream worker. So 
how do you work with dreams to reclaim the natural sense of purpose, belonging, and really uncover our natural strengths, our, our innate inner wisdom and gifts? How, how does that work? Wow. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we think of ourselves as having a single identity. <laughs> um, and uh, what happens is when we pay attention to our dreams, we meet this whole cast of characters that lives on our insides, <laughs> that lives in, in, on the landscape of our psyche. And um, that's when we realize that we are actually a multiplicity. And we can begin to interact and engage and listen to and learn from that multiplicity. And in so doing, becoming much more competent at inclusion and diversity in our day worlds. So uh, the way that I work with dreams is really I, uh, you know, I work in groups and I host retreats from time to time and I work with individuals one-on-one -on -one with their dreams in a private practice. But ultimately the, the, the process is more or less the same in both of those scenarios, whether it's a group or one-on-one, -on -one, where I will just ask somebody to tell me the story of their dream. And then I, I, sort of follow my curiosity, wanting to ultimately try and put myself in the dreamer's shoes. So what I'm really looking for is an embodied understanding of what they experience as they move through the dream. And so I might ask them what associations they have to different figures and characters and symbols in their dream. And then we will begin together through a conversation to bridge back the associations they have to those images, to things that are going on for them in waking life or in the world at large. And then we begin to make these connections between this, the uh, invisible symbolic world or what's some call, sometimes called the mythic dimension and what is happening in the waking world. And there's a very magical experience that is the result of making these bridges where we start to see that there's a relationship between those images and what's happening in our lives. And suddenly we can see that there is a mythic unfolding to the experience or seasons that we're having in our human lives, that they aren't just sort of day-to-day -day mundane kind of practical moving through the motions, but actually they have deep symbolic importance, which is to say they give us a relationship to the unseen and mythic forces that are driving our lives. So, you know, we learn a lot working with dreams. So I have a lot of people who come to me and they have difficult dreams. You know, they have scary dreams or terrible dreams. And I think our habit is mostly to have a dream like that and to push it as far away as possible, to not write it down, to not pay attention to it because it chills us and it frightens us or it repulses us or it's violent or there are many reasons to get as far away from a dream as possible. But what I try to teach 
teach people is that these dreams are only that way because they have turned up the volume because we haven't been paying attention to something that's been trying for a long time to get our attention. And the reason why it has turned up the volume is because there's something important that is ready to come to consciousness, that is ready to be healed, that is ready to be seen. That's the only reason you get dark dreams, because there's something in your psyche that is trying to integrate what is happening. And the dreams can offer us clues in how to do that. And so we look at the entire dream, and instead of just focusing on the difficult or problematic images in the dreams, we'll look at the surrounding details for clues as to what is the generative or creative or healing impulse that is also coming through the dreams. And that could take many, many forms. It could be a figure that has too small a voice. It could take the dream of an, an animal that is neglected and wants to be fed. It could take the form of a script that has something to teach us or a stranger that has a message for us or a color you know, that when we make associations to reminds us of something very healing in our past or in our present, you know, every dream is very, very different. And I try to approach them by what I call courtship. And the reason why I use that lovely old timey word is because if we want something to reveal it's concealed medicine for us. We have to approach it respectfully and with curiosity and uh, in a way holding back the projections that we might have about something being good or bad or right or wrong and instead being curious about it. And so similar to courtship, I will circle something close from a, a respectful distance until it invites us closer by revealing something. In this way, we often discover some amazing and surprising things in those images that we might have earlier just dismissed. I, I, I'll tell you a story back when I studied uh, many years ago, well, not that many, a couple decades ago with Sandra Ingerman, and who's been a wonderful friend and teacher over the years. And I first had started to teach, I think I was taking her teacher training and uh, I, I kept having this dream that a rattlesnake was biting my neck, you know, and I, I actually called her up and said, I think I'm going to die. I keep having this, this dream. And she was laughing, saying, that's a pretty auspicious dream, you know, and given I was doing the shamanic work at the time. And, um, and then the other night before this, uh, night, la uh, night before last, um, I had another rattlesnake dream and it was, it was very strange. And it was, um, I, there was this, this juicy cheeseburger, big, thick cheeseburger that was on a plate and I was trying to get to it. And, and, uh, three first one, then another, then a third rattlesnake showed up and I kept pushing them away. And I was trying to get to this cheese. I don't even eat cheeseburgers, but I had had this crazy dream. How would I start to unravel? I know part of Jungian is to give perhaps each snake or the hamburger a voice and, but 
but from your perspective, if I came to you with a dream like that, what would you what would you say? Where would we begin? Well, first of all, I'd go out and eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll take that advice sometime <laughs> or make one. I mean, does that seem like a delicious prospect to you? It may be time to eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> Maybe so. It was very juicy. Yummy looking. I well, kept pushing these snakes and I was trying not to get bitten. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's something very nourishing and juicy and um, delicious within your reach, uh, but something is blocking you from, from um, having that, from being nourished. And so, you know, obviously we can't get into a dream work session here because we only have a few minutes left. But I, I, you know, I don't do like quick analyses like that. What I would do is sit down with you and, and talk to you about each of those elements. I'd like to know, for instance, what was happening 20 years ago when you first had those dreams. And I would trace back the, the lineage of that image. Um, and I would not, I'd like to know what uh, I would try to make a bridge between what was happening at that time and what is happening at this time, because rattlesnakes mm. seem like an important image for you. Um, and, uh, and then we would probably talk about the juicy hamburger and we would talk about why you're not eating them and, uh, and, and, you know, what's behind that. And there's, you know, there's infinite questions that I would ask and, and I would have to follow the clues as we went, uh, into those images together. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, a lot of people will want to just sort of turn to a dream dictionary and look up rattlesnake and find a definition. But what a rattlesnake is for you could be extremely different from somebody who, say, cares for rattlesnakes and, um, you know, has had a lifelong relationship with them. And so I would have to get at your personal associations to that image to get a real sense of how you felt in the dream and see what that reminded you of, of things that might be happening in waking life. So it's a very sort of organic process that um, really should be approached in a sacred container. Yeah, I love that. And that's what I wanted is just to hear your process a little bit and, and, and talk about that. And actually I got some insights, which I, I, I won't go into because <laughs> I want to cover so many other things. And one of the things, Tokopa, is I wanted to get to talking about your name. I'm really interested in naming, and your name has particular significance and has a relationship to your path. But naming in general is something that I'm really interested in and, well, what that creates. But tell us the story of your name. You were born, uh, given this at birth, this name. I was, yeah. Um, so it was the 70s. <laughs> and my parents were uh, both hippies. And um, my father had this book called Technicians of the Sacred by Jerome Rothenberg. And it was a sort of uh, a book of poems from different cultures around the world. And one of the poems was a Maori poem, and it had the name Tokopa in it. So Tokopa in the Maori culture is translates roughly through their cosmology uh, to parent of the mist, parent of the mist. Mm -hmm. 
And so, and so we didn't have any cultural connection to the Maori people, but the book was, the poem was randomly chosen from this book. And you can imagine growing up with a name like that was a, a bit of a difficulty. Even I briefly changed my name when I was about nine years old and went to a new school, but that didn't last. It, I don't think it lasted more than a year, but it, it took me a long time to come into my name. In fact, I used to shorten it all the time so that it could be easy for people because it was always hard for people, even though it's such kind of an easy name to spell, but because it's out of context, people get stumble on it. But somewhere in my 20s, I realized that this idea of being a parent of the mist, of being named after this deity was really intriguing to me. And it really felt in alignment with what I've devoted my own life to, which is this, I think of that mist now as the veil between the worlds. Um, and I do spend a lot of time in that place, helping people uh, bring things back from one side to the other. So now I use my full name because the pa part, Tokopa, uh, actually is the, the holy part. It's the goddess part. So, so I like to use the whole name now and I, I'm I'm increasingly comfortable with it. <laughs> Plus, it's pretty good for email addresses, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can get tokopa.com pretty easily, probably. <laughs> so it's so fitting, though, because you your work is weaving a bridge between the seen and the unseen worlds for people and really, in a way, clearing some of the mist. So talk about how you act as a bridge in your work and support people to getting closer to the sacred. Well, you know, more than any other thing, I would say that I am best described as an animist. Mm -hmm. And what that means for me is I believe that all things have life force, all things have spirit. And, um, but in a way, in the culture that we live in, which um, disregards the invisible world completely, one can only really be an aspiring animist. I was thinking about that the other day, right? Because um, unless you were raised in an indigenous culture that taught you these things from birth, you know, you're really learning this stuff from scratch. And so I'm an aspiring animist, which really just means that every day I try to live my life in relationship with those invisible, holy beings. And what that looks like for me is I spend a lot of time in nature. I really pay a lot of attention to my dreams. And I make a lot of space in my life to listen to what is being said in those other languages other than the human language. And so I try to pass those things on to others who are interested in their dreams. And often when, when we, I love doing retreats, I uh, haven't been able to do that for a couple of years because of the COVID. When I do do retreats, I often bring other teachers in 
to, to help. So I will mostly focus on teaching about dreams, but then I might bring a plant medicine teacher in to talk about herbs that are growing on the land where we're meeting or introduce us to the indigenous species on that land. And then I might also bring in a movement facilitator to help us. We do, I do a lot of somatic work myself. So I help people listen to their bodies and pay attention to their bodies, which is a very powerful way of it, perhaps maybe even the most powerful way of working with one's dreams, moving your symbol, I call it. And then I also have musicians sometimes come in and teach us songs, which help to align us with the rhythm of the earth. And so, so yeah, and, and we try to make things with our hands as well. I feel like hand making is one of the great capacities of belonging because in the act of creating something with our hands, we begin to understand creation itself. We understand what goes into the making of a thing and, and we embed our stories and our dreams and our longing into those things we make with our hands. So these are the, some, of the, some of the ways that I live my life I, and I just try and share that with others. As I'm now 76 years old, I'm, I'm still becoming an animistic practitioner <laughs> in my own daily life, in my walks and time in nature. Yes. I love living in the woods and being on a farm and feeling my connection. But that's something that's developed over many, many, many decades, many years. Yes. And you're a you're a musician also, and I think you you actually played in a band in your earlier life, and you talk about vibration and vibratory signature. That seems to me to relate to the thing we were talking about earlier about life and movement and energy. So what's what's a vibratory signature? <laughs> I love playing with words and making stuff up really is what it is. But I, I believe, you know, we focus a lot on what we produce and we place a lot of value and worth on, on what we produce, you know, how we look and what we produce and whatever is external. But I think that what's actually important is the who that you are becoming and the who that you have become. And when you make something from that place, there is a kind of signature that's left on the things that you make and on the things that you do. And I call it a vibratory signature because it, it's got a vibe to it. You know, it's got a, a, a vibration that people recognize right away. So you could be incredibly skilled at making some kind of craft, but if people don't resonate with the who that you are, they might, they might, may not see beauty there. But when you do resonate with somebody's vibration, then you can you can feel that beauty. It's it's immediately apparent in everything a person does. It's apparent in your face. It's apparent in how you move your body. It, it's again, we're talking about invisible, intangible thing. But we do the same. This is what we're always after when we're doing dream work is resonance. Resonance is a wonderful musical term, actually, because it, it comes from two beings or two instruments that harmonize or resonate with each other at the same vibratory level. So an example is if you walked into a room where one of my guitars is leaning on the wall and you struck a note vocally at the, the right 
pitch. The guitar, even though it's 10 feet away, would vibrate and hum because it resonates. So when we're working with dreams, we're always looking for that moment. And you, it's, it's very much a physiological thing that when something resonates, you feel it. Your skin gets goosebumps. You, your heart opens you your tears come to your eyes you your hair stands on end that's resonance you know just that mm. feeling of yesness and so we're always after that when we were when we work with the dream and interestingly enough it will resonate for both me and the dreamer or whoever the two people are you'll have that feeling simultaneously and if you don't then it's probably not the right path and you have to keep searching for the way in well, Tokapa Turner, we have run out of time, but I have to tell you and thank you for your resonance because <laughs> I know I certainly I I feel you in my body. I just think it's it's so such an honor to work with you and thank you for your work and good luck with your move and please stay attend uh, stay in touch and come back again and be on We Earth Radio. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been such a joy to speak to you again. And um, yeah, let me know if you do decide to go out for that hamburger. <laughs> I will. <laughs> much love to you. Bye. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.